I, we're in the series on, uh, on the scriptures, and we talked already last week in the introduction about how uh, the scriptures are all about Jesus. And so everything that we talk about with the, the, the paradigm series is going to tie into Jesus, because if you're going to read and understand the Bible, then you have to connect it to Jesus. If you lose track of Jesus, you lose track of the whole thing. So... Um, paradigm, remember, is a way of seeing the world. And whether you realize it or not, when you read the Bible, when you pick up the Bible, you see it from a particular perspective, informed by your experience and what you were told about the Bible and uh, whether you went to church or not and how the church approached the Bible. But, um, but we have to remember that it's all about Jesus. And so with Palm Sunday celebrating Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem and next, uh, all through this week, as we go through Holy Week and into Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to be talking about the Bible, but we're going to be tying it in to Jesus. And so just briefly, what we talked about last week was what the Bible is not. And we said that the Bible is not a theology dictionary. You, you should be getting your theology from the Bible, but the Bible is not a theology dictionary. The Bible is not a moral handbook. It does give us good moral guidance, but that's not really the point of it. If anything, it shows us our lack and how we fall short so that it leads us to Jesus once again. Because if you look at God's moral standard, you realize, oh, I don't even meet up to my own standard, let alone God's. I need a savior, and it's supposed to lead you to Jesus. So it's not a moral handbook great moral guidance, but it's all about Jesus. And likewise, we said that the Bible is not a devotional grab bag. Uh, you're not supposed to just kind of flip it open, pick a verse, and, and, uh, and go with it. That, that there's, a, there's a, 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 a whole story to it. And yes, I want you to be reading and responding to God's word on a daily basis, and that's kind of the point of this whole series, but I want you to do it in an informed way, and I want you to be able to do it in a way that is going to benefit you to the greatest extent. So it's not you should have devotions, but the Bible is not a devotional grab bag. But what is the Bible? The Bible is a unified story that leads us to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And I told you that this whole series is inspired by a podcast series that I listened to from the Bible Project. This is uh, where they go through their paradigm and how they approach the Bible. And I'm going to be uh, using that as a main resource. And I would encourage you to listen as well as we go through this, you can find it. And again, this is in your growth guide, the Paradigm Pro uh, Podcast. You can Google, search in your podcast app, or go to the Bible Project's website, and you will find it there. This idea that the Bible is all about Jesus and is a unified story that leads us to Jesus is not something that the Bible Project came up with. It's actually how Jesus talked about the scriptures himself. And in fact, this would be a great verse for you to memorize. If you've never memorized scripture, uh, I would encourage you to do that because just having that and, and in your mind and at the ready is always a good thing. And if you'd like to start, you're going to have like six to eight weeks to memorize one verse. I think you can do it. So this is John 5, 39. You search Jesus speaking. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to 
me. Jesus says the scriptures are all about me. Today, in part two, we're going to be talking about the evidence of the actions, paradigm part two. And the question that we're asking here is, why should I trust the Bible? We talked uh, last week about how uh, very often when people are introduced to the Bible, they're given a Bible say, this is God's word. You're supposed to believe everything in it. If it's in the Bible, it's true. Uh, and, uh, and I believe that. Uh, I believe that the Bible, what the Bible teaches is true is true. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. But, um, but we're not prepared. We're not, we're not introduced in a way often that gives you insight and understanding in how to approach the scriptures. And so that's, that's a big part of what we want to do today. Because here's what can happen. And this is especially relevant to those of you who are, uh, who are in, still in school or have kids who are still in school, a lot of the times the way that we talk about the Bible sets them up to fail when it comes to understanding and interpreting the Bible as they get older because uh, eventually they have to make, all of us have to make that transition if you grew up in the church between this is my parents' faith, this is my church's faith, to this is my faith. And if we mishandle the handoff to the scriptures, Sometimes that can set them up for failure because we say everything in the Bible is true and then they go to their first college class on ancient literature or comparative religions or something like that and they're told, well, you know, there's all kinds of contradictions in the Bible and there's all these different things and it's gone through all of these translations and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, okay, they, they didn't teach me that in Sunday school. And then they start looking at it. It's like, okay, in passage we're going to look at today. Did Jesus ride two animals or one animal when he went into uh, Jerusalem that day? I mean, how do, how, do we, how do we reconcile that? How do we think about that? And, um, and there are really good reasons to trust the Bible. And it always blows my mind because people, uh, you know, there's this phrase that's out there, and probably most of you aren't uh, going to be familiar with it, but people who are deconstructing their faith, they're asking these questions, and people who have been involved in ministry and leading people in worship all of a sudden are rejecting what they have believed and all that because of these questions, you know, if, if, God is, if God is such a good God, why is there so much injustice in the world, and how can you let that happen? And when I read the scriptures and it talks about basically genocide, how am I, that's approved by God, how am I supposed to uh, reconcile that? There are, there are serious and, and meaningful questions out there that need to be answered, but, but what surprises me is like, okay, you know, how long, how long the, the, most, the most recent, the, the closest to us in time uh, events that are in the Bible happened about almost 2,000 years ago. So this is not something new. And a lot of times people look at it as like, oh, well, how could people believe that stuff and not recognize that people have been working through that seriously for over 2,000 years and still coming out of it the other end with their faith intact. So it's not like, you know, I'm the first person that ever noticed that there's problems here that are questions that I can't figure out. But, but that's, that's, that's kind of the way it happens. And so we need to prepare 
ourselves, because we're going to have those questions. I told you last week that you know, it seemed like some of my professors in my Christian school in the religion department, their whole goal was to deconstruct, to tear down the Sunday school faith that some of us grew up in. But we're going to have those questions. Our kids are going to have those questions. You're going to have those questions. It's good to know that there are answers to those questions. There are good reasons to believe what we believe, and there are issues that we have to deal with and work through, but people have been working through them and dealing with them for millennia now and have good answers. So why should we trust the Bible? Today we're going to be talking about trust. And here's the thing about the scriptures is that the reason that we believe what's in the Bible is because it is, it is not because it's in the Bible. It's that there's something about these things, these stories, these writings, these, uh, these scrolls that set them apart. And so because there's something about them that's different and special, and trustworthy, and insightful, it's because of that that they were included in the scriptures. Are you following me? It's not that somebody hands you a book and says, trust this because it's in this book. It's actually that there's trustworthy stuff, and so it got compiled in a book. Or the way I put it in the bottom line for this week is it's in the book because we trust it. We don't trust it because it's in the book. It's just not this arbitrary thing. We trust it because it's in the book because we trust it. Every once in a while in the tabloids or in the news, there's, there'll be something. Oh, these are the Bible books that were left out of the Bible. They were excluded from the Bible. You know, the Gospel of Thomas. And everybody's like, oh, wow, why did they do that? They just made this arbitrary decision to not include the Gospel. And it tells a totally different story. So how can we trust that, you know, they were just trying to protect their power? Baloney. It, the, the reason that it's not in the book is because it's not trustworthy. There, there were certain characteristics that, that came into it. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And there's actually a parallel, because remember, I said, you know, we're going to be talking about Jesus, but it's all about Jesus, and uh, the scriptures are all about Jesus, and there's a parallel between why we trust Jesus and what's special and set him apart and what sets the scriptures apart. And so the practical aspect of this is always be connecting the plot to Jesus. When, when you're looking at the scriptures, if you want to understand it correctly, if you want to maintain your faith, you get always be connecting the plot to Jesus. So let's look at the plot of this special day in the life of the church and in the church calendar where we are celebrating Palm Sunday. This is Matthew's account of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. We'll connect it, connect Jesus to the scriptures and the scriptures to Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 21. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead, two of the disciples. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them, and then they will immediately let you take them. 
this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Just a quick little aside, the, the reason that they would wave palm branches and do all of that is that palm branches were the symbol of the nation of Israel. It'd be like waving flags. You know, they, they couldn't go to their store and pick up a little flag, uh, but, but the palm trees, because they were so prevalent in the area, they became a symbol of the nation. And so they were welcoming their king, and so they're waving their flags. That's what's going on here. Jesus in the center of the pro- was in the center of the procession, and people all around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you are trustworthy and good and that you have preserved the record of your interaction with your people in the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, through what we talk about today, give us confidence in you and in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Just a reminder, on-site, on-demand, online are all synced up again. So the same message that we're talking about today is going to be online and what people are watching this morning and also on-demand and on the podcast and all of that. So if for some reason you have to miss, then you will be able to keep up in that way. And you know what we do. We inspire and equip people to follow Jesus. What's that word? Wholeheartedly. And um, when we were were singing Good, Good Father, this also made me think of this. Why why does following Jesus make life better and make you better at life? Because your Heavenly Father wants wants that for you. I mean, for your kids, don't you want what's best for your kids? Don't you want them to thrive? I mean, your Heavenly Father wants the same thing for you, and so we want that for you because he wants that for you. Um, And uh, so let's go through this. It's in the book because we trust it. We don't trust it because it's in the book. We, it's in the book because we trust it. And the parallel that I want to uh, uh, say is, you know, the scriptures make some pretty amazing claims about themselves. Uh, the apostle Paul writing to his apprentice Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training, da-da-da-da-da-da. It's God-breathed. God, God is in the midst of all of this. And, but we don't, we don't believe the scriptures just because it makes those claims about itself, we make those claims about the scriptures that are reflected in the scriptures because we've experienced, we have a firsthand experience with the scriptures. And Jesus actually did a very similar thing. In John chapter 10, look at what he says about himself. He says, put aside for a moment what you hear me say about myself. He's, he's, he's having a confrontation with people who are challenging him, and he's saying, yeah, I'm making some pretty amazing claims about myself, some stuff that might be hard for you to accept, but just set aside for right now all the things that I've been saying about myself, and just take the evidence of the actions. That's why I called this message the evidence of the actions, and just take the evidence of the actions that are right before your eyes. 
In other words, I'm going to make some claims about myself, and you know, you're free to do with them what you will, and I'm speaking the truth, and, and I, I think that will be backed up. But even if you don't pay attention to what I say, just look at what's going on. Look at what I'm doing. Take the evidence of the actions that are right before your eyes. And what kind of response did uh, Jesus engender from the people? In Mark chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, it says, Everyone there was spellbound, buzzing with curiosity. What's going on here? A new teaching. This is after Jesus taught and healed in the temple. A new, in the synagogue, a new teaching that does what it says, he shuts up defiling demonic spirits and tells them to get lost. This is obviously the message translation. Uh, and then it says, news of this traveled fast and was soon all over Galilee. So what was happening? And we see, again, Jesus' pattern. He prayed, he healed, he taught. What's our pattern? We're going to do the same kind of thing. Look at the back page of your growth guide for that. But... Um, What's happening here is Jesus' actions are making the case for who he is. And when it comes to the scriptures, our experience with the scriptures make the case for what they are as well. It's in the book because we trust it. So how did the scriptures come to be? And this is why I especially like to talk about this at this time of the year, um, uh, Andy Stanley right now is actually going through a series called Investigating Jesus where they're looking at the Gospel of Luke and uh, I screen captured this uh, chalkboard drawing because it, it makes the, a point that, that I think is a really good point and it kind of fits in. That d- Do you realize that there wouldn't be a Bible if there weren't a resurrection? Okay? And, and when, when he said that, it was like, yeah, I never really thought about that before, but, but he's absolutely right. We would have the same familiarity with the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, as we do with like the Greek gods. It would just be some historical footnote, you know, something that would be interesting, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't reverence it. We wouldn't put it in a book called the Bible if it weren't for Jesus' resurrection. And there wouldn't, we wouldn't care about, there wouldn't have been, even been a church. There wouldn't have even been writings of the Apostle Paul and uh, Luke keeping track of what Jesus said and how the early church grew. It grew if it weren't for the resurrection. Because a person who claims to be a Messiah who is going to rescue his people and then gets killed by the occupying force is a failed Messiah. They, they weren't obviously who they said they were, if that's what happens, because that's kind of the job description of the Messiah, is to get rid of the Romans, and that was their understanding. Get rid of the Romans and set up his throne, and if he doesn't do that, then he's a failed Messiah. And it's not like Jesus was the only one who, who thought about this. I mean, Barsabbas, uh, Barabbas, the guy who... Um, uh, uh, was released instead of Jesus. Remember that? He, he was a revolutionary. He was a failed Messiah. There were uh, people like this all over the time, always showing up. And the only reason we know about some of them is because they it tangentially uh, came into the story of Jesus, like Barabbas. Um, so the only reason that we have a Bible is because of the resurrection, because here's the process. 
there was an event. Jesus came back from the dead that spurred a movement that was documented and then assembled in what we call the Bible. If it weren't for this, then we would have no this. And we don't believe this. We don't believe this because it's in this. We have this because this happened. It was the evidence of the actions that when Jesus rose from the dead, people said, hmm, we, we, we should pay attention to what this guy said. You know, uh, we, we weren't too sure about him before, and we were kind of depressed when he kind of, you know, died and, and our, all our hopes were dashed. But then he came back to life. So maybe we should write some things down. Maybe we should take this seriously. That's what happened. So the, it's the event that spurred a movement that was documented and assembled in our scriptures. So what was it about the scriptures that people encounter that sets them apart from everything else? Why, do, why did we collect them into this thing that we call the Bible? Well, let's, what is the Bible experience? When people experience the Bible, what do they experience? Four things come to mind for me that set it apart. One is the character of the writings. There's a reason why 500 years later we're still reading Shakespeare, right? Because uh, the genius of his writings uh, set them apart from everything else in English literature. Well, it's not like the Bible, uh, the scriptures that are included in the Bible were the only religious writings that were ever out there. It's, but there's something about them when you read them that set them apart, and I've heard, you know, I grew up reading the Bible and all that, but, but I've heard that people who, uh, you know, like grew up reading the Koran, for example, and then start reading the scriptures, and that, that there's, there's just something different. There's something that stands out about the scriptures. And if you've never experienced this, if you're not a Bible reader, pick up and just read the Gospel of John and see if it doesn't speak to you. See if it doesn't move you. There's something about the character of these writings that set them apart, that when people were looking at all the different religious writings that were out there, these were different in character, and that's why they are included. Another reason is their authenticity, that... Um, you know, for a long time, people were like, oh, this was recorded so far after the event. You can't trust all that. Jesus didn't really think he was God, and they just made all this stuff up, and blah, blah, blah. And it was 200, 300 years before anybody came up with that. And then they started finding fragments of the Gospel of John that were from the first century AD. And uh, all this documentation and recognizing, it, it, there's no serious scholar that that would make the case now that the early believers didn't believe that Jesus was God and that Jesus didn't live or that he didn't make the claims that he claimed. There's, there's authenticity to it, and that gets proved over time. The other thing is authorship. Uh, a lot of the reasons that s some writings are not in the Bible is because they were written under pseudonyms people pretending to be somebody else. But the scriptures are 
I believe pretty consistently, pretty reliably, I mean, very reliably, very consistently, written by the people that they claim to be. Uh, let's look at the Gospels. You have Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus. He was a firsthand eyewitness to the things that he recorded. You have Mark, who was probably a member of the early church, and although very young at the time, probably knew Jesus, probably was around Jesus, was uh, probably there on Maundy Thursday when Jesus was arrested, and uh, there's, only, there's only one gospel account that is recorded of the guy who, when the soldiers show up, ran away, they tried to grab him, they grabbed his cloak, it ripped off his cloak, and he ran away naked. That's the only, that's the only gospel that includes that story. I think that that was Mark, and I think that's why it was included in there. But he was a part of the early church, and then uh, when Peter got uh, miraculously released from prison, he showed up at John Mark's house, and then he traveled with Peter, heard his preaching, and as Peter was getting older, and Jesus had not yet come back. They were like, okay, well, uh, I should probably, we should probably start writing this stuff down. And so Mark was writing that stuff down. John, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, was also an eyewitness account. And so these, these people, the, the writings that we have, the authorship is, is trustworthy. These are people that were there, that experienced it firsthand. And that's why they're included and some others are not. And then lastly, I would point out the consistency. If the entire scripture is a record uh, of God's relationship with his people, a unified story that leads us to Jesus, then you're going to see a consistency throughout that, that, that it points to Jesus. It's about Jesus. It ties it all together. Why, do we, why, why is there a Bible? Because Jesus raised from the dead. Why, why do we have a New Testament? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Why is the Old Testament included in our scriptures? Because Jesus, who rose from the dead, took the Old Testament seriously. That's why we care about it. That's why it's included in our Bible. It's all about Jesus. And if you don't want to get off track, then keep connecting the plot to Jesus. Because remember, remember you're memorizing this, John 5, 39? Scriptures, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. The reason it's in the book is because it was trustworthy, and it's in the book because we trust it. And so that's why we encourage people to commit their lives to Jesus, to say yes to Jesus, to allow him to do for you what you could not do for yourself to die on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven. And then he was raised from the dead to prove that he had the power to forgive sins and to do what he said he would do. And then to be Lord and ruler in your life. Say yes to Jesus. And that's what we do all the time over and over again, even as a follower of Jesus. So always be connecting the plot to Jesus. Let me give you an example of... Um, what I'm talking about there. There's some scriptures missing, but that's okay. I'll roll with it. That's why... Oops, sorry. Um, I'll go quickly through this as we wrap it up. In your growth guide, you'll see these scriptures. Um, 
We're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I, I really hope that you'll go back and read this whole chapter. What's happening here is the people have finally come into the land of Israel. And while they were traveling around, while they were in the desert, and as they were moving into the promised land, the, the center of worship was the tabernacle, which is a fancy word for a tent. And now a kingdom has been established, and David is on the throne, and he's living in a cedar-paneled house. And he looks out and sees that the ark of God, the, the, the symbol of God's presence, is living in a tent. And he's like, this isn't right. We need to build a house for God. I can't live in a house and have God living in a tent. And so he goes to his prophet Nathan, and Nathan says, do whatever, you, uh, do whatever God has placed on your heart. And then God comes to Nathan in the middle of the night and says, wait a second, no, no, that's not what I have in mind. And uh, he goes back, Nathan goes back to King David and delivers God's word to him and says, uh, you're not the one to build a house for me. When we, when, I, when we were traveling all around, did I ever complain about not having a house? <laughs> Read it, that's what he says. Uh, I, I'm not asking for a house. Uh, I have been doing all these things for you. I rescued you from your enemies. I established your throne. And he just lists all these things that he's been doing for him. And he says, I'm not looking for you to do something for me. In fact, I don't want you to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And he's using the play on the words. So he's not talking about a house a cedar-paneled house. He's talking about a dynasty. He's like, you want to build me a house? No, I don't need a house. I haven't, I haven't asked for that from you, but I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to establish your house for generations. And oh, by the way, you know, uh, you're, you're going to have a son, and he'll build me a house. Don't worry about it. It'll be taken care of. I'll get a house, but, but, you, but you don't have to do it. Your, your son will do it. And then, of course, in time, David had Solomon. Solomon has built the first temple. But then, pick it up. You, you can see the scripture there. It's in 1 Peter. It picks up this theme. And this is, this is the point I'm making. Remember how I'm saying that God is always connecting. You always, always tie the plot back to Jesus. Well, who else is a son of David besides Solomon? Jesus. And... And this happens so often in Old Testament versus New Testament. You've got a prophecy. Your son's going to build you a house. And there's a near-term horizon. Solomon will build a literal temple. And you've also got a far-term horizon that always is related to Jesus, that David's son is going to establish a new temple. And this temple is going to be different from any other. It's going to be made up of the people of God. And rather than God showing up in a tent or in a building in one place from time to time, and you, if you want to be in God's presence, you have to go to that place and offer a sacrifice and all of that, there's going to be a time where God's people are going to be the temple. And his presence is going to be with you always and wherever you go. 
the way the Apostle Peter talked about it in Second Peter, First Peter, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. You, as followers of Jesus, are the new temple of God. His presence is always with you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. His power is always available to us. And wherever we go, we carry with us the presence of God. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of what he did for us and the invitation that he extends to us. Always be connecting the plot to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much and we're so grateful for your goodness and kindness to us. And Lord, I pray that you would deepen our faith, build our trust in you, and help us as we go through the scriptures to always be connecting the plot to you, to recognize that there's evidence, there's good reason for the things that we've been taught and that people have believed for millennia now, that um, we believe what's in the book, not because it's in the book, but because it's in the book because of what happened in particular, the, the resurrection, the event in time and history of the resurrection. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would experience the scriptures because to experience the word of God is to be introduced to the one who is the word of God, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. May your presence be manifest to us and with us as we, who are the temple, go out through our world, into our homes, into our workplaces, into our schools, new situations and old, to carry your presence wherever we go so that more and more people will know and understand the good news. More and more people will confess your name and bow their knee to you so that your kingdom will expand and justice will flow like a river and mercy and peace will flood over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.